And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. It's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, even from the Arctic, with Bruce Anderson, coming right up. Well, I'm in Arctic Bay in Nunavut. That's way up there. It's way up there. It's not as far up as I was a couple of days ago in Greece Fjord, but it's pretty close. And it's a, a pretty nice day here. It's a little overcast, but it's, um, it's cold. It's often cold in Arctic Bay. That's why they call it Arctic Bay. All right. I'm in Arctic Bay. Bruce is uh, in Nova Scotia. Are you still in Nova Scotia? Peter, I am. I've been following your uh, travels with great interest, and um, it's nice to see that you got nice weather. I'm in Nova Scotia. You're in Arctic Bay. I was on Beach Meadows, or Meadows Beach, I guess, today, and it's just like the name suggests. There was a meadow and a beautiful long beach, and it's hot here in Nova Scotia, but I'm uh, I'm looking forward to talking. Good. Well, let's, um, you know, I've been sort of Obviously, I've been into Arctic stuff, whether it's Arctic sovereignty, climate change, uh, history. I've had all of that stuff going for the last four or five days, and I've been totally zoned out of anything election. And so, quite frankly, have been the people I've met. Nobody's talking about the election uh, yet. Now, they have other things to be concerned about. But I'm I'm wondering whether there is kind of a sense of that in the country as well so i like i'm totally out of play here so you got to help me in terms of um you know are we in what they like to call the phony war the first couple of weeks of the campaign especially a couple of weeks where most of the country is on summer holidays as chantelle used to tell us uh she didn't expect it would really get started until uh, you know labor day weekend um but you tell me, you're there, you're, I know you're on holidays as well, but you're a lot closer to the action. Are, what are you sensing? Are, are people engaging or is it still, you know, quiet times? Well, I, I you know, have, I remember the period of time, Peter, before the election call and you and sometimes Chantal and I would get on the pod and talk about when the election was going to be and so in contrast with then when, you know, it seemed like I changed my position pretty regularly about whether we were going to have a fall election or not. Yes, you did. Um, <laughs> when we, when the three of us got together for good talk a, a little over a week ago, I guess um, I did say that I didn't think the election was really going to take hold until uh, after Labor Day. And I still feel that that's the case. I think that we're in a period now, which is, I'm a Formula One racing fan. It's a little bit like practice, the practice sessions that the teams enter into that comes before the qualifying sessions that comes before the actual race. And so, well, stuff is happening and obviously uh, news organizations are covering it and Twitter is definitely, um, you know, consuming and opining on the election, I don't think a lot of Canadians have really decided to dial in yet. And, and so there's some fluidity in the polls, but it also feels to me like it's fluidity rather than people saying, okay, I was going to do this and now I know I'm going to do that. It, it's a lot more loose than that. You know, I, I'll tell you one thing about traveling uh, in the high Arctic. Um, obviously, 
connectivity isn't as good as it is in, in in southern Canada. It's still pretty remarkably good, all things considered. You can you know you can hit the odd satellite uh, and 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 bring in a, a signal in small hamlets like this one in Arctic Bay. The Wi-Fi is you know pretty good unless everybody's on it at the same time. Then it's a little tricky. But um, one thing I have noticed, you know, I've. You know, I, I probably spend too much time on Twitter in southern Canada, you know, looking, watching stuff. Here, it's a lot harder to get. Any of the social media is a lot harder to get on a normal day, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or what have you. Um, so I've been kind of off Twitter, and it's been, I've found, a bit of a luxury because Twitter yeah. at times like this, elections, you know, the, the partisans get in, uh, some of the, uh, you know, those who, you know, call themselves opinion leaders uh, get in on, on Twitter and it becomes a real mumble jumble and, and you don't know what to believe anymore. So it's been a bit of a luxury yeah, I, not having yeah. that. Yeah, I believe that. I think that there's a lot of, you, you know, Twitter for me is other, it has two settings. If I post pictures of my r- rather amateurish paintings, I see the good side of Twitter. Lots of people saying, well, that's really nice. Way to go. Keep doing it, Bruce. And then when I kind of turn off that part of Twitter and, and tune into politics, Twitter, it's, it's a mess. And it's especially a mess, I think, in this period right now where all of the partisans and all of the media types who are trying to cover this campaign and opine on it are, you know, feeling kind of obliged to give instant takes on everything and, to skirmish with each other. And, and, you know, I have to remind myself every once in a while that it's, um, you know, it's about 80% of the adult population that doesn't use Twitter. Um, and so whatever is happening on Twitter isn't happening in, in the election as far as they're concerned. Facebook has more penetration, but I don't think that the campaign has really lit up for most people. I think they're spending the last bit of summer hoping that the return to school uh, goes safely for those families that have children going back to school and hoping that the pandemic doesn't rear its ugly head again for, you know, for everybody. And, um, and thinking that, you know, unlike our neighbors to the South who take an awful long time to run elections, it seems that we seem to be relatively confident that if we pay attention starting around the time of the debates and for the next couple of weeks after that, uh, we'll be able to make the right decision. And um, uh, there, so there's a calmness, I think, to public opinion that certainly isn't there on, on social media most of the time, and especially during election times. Let me, um, let me pull on that thread a little bit more before we get into um, some perhaps more uh, substantive stuff. Uh, you know, what is, you know, what would be your advice to those who want to follow the election campaign, but don't want to be influenced by others take, um, you know, obviously there, there, there are social media challenge, uh, channels. There are newspapers, television, radio. Um, there are certain channels where you can actually just raw watch raw footage of, of the leaders in campaigns. Um, those are all possible. I mean, I, I, it's funny, I, I, you know, I've tried to do on this trip, I've tried to do some kind of, not election news, but election sort of fun facts uh, each night as well. And the other night I did a thing on signs, and I was stunned to see in a, a study that had been done on lawn, lawn signs in an election campaign, it was an American election, uh, I'll concede, but nevertheless, it was an interesting study uh, that showed that 
two out of five people who looked at signs were influenced by other people's decisions on signs, like their neighbors or friends. Uh, And if they were showing support for a certain candidate, that that tended to influence their thinking. So it's not just, you know, Twitter or, or what have you. Uh, that can have that kind of an impact on a, on a, on a way a person thinks during an election time. But what do you suggest if you say you're a, you know, you're a, an ordinary Canadian, so to speak, you have not made up your mind about how you're going to vote. And so you want information, but you want it uncluttered, unfiltered, um, not vetted by somebody else. You just want it. Well, you know, a lot of people are going to rely on others, but instead of um, imagining that they're going to rely on people that they don't know opining on social media, the truth is, I think that that social media are particularly helpful when people are hearing from people who they do know, their friends, their family members, their neighbors, that sort of thing. And they don't only listen to those people via social media. Sometimes they run into them at the shopping centers or at the grocery store or at the church or in their place of work. Um, And so I think what we do know is that the influence of people that you know and whose opinion you value, I wouldn't necessarily say trust, but I would say value, that those um, that those interactions do matter more and more these days. So that really we're talking about a situation where people are, are saying, you know, I've heard different things about X, fill in the blank, or what our climate target should be, whether we've got the right kind of policies in place around vaccination. Um, what do you think? And so those kinds of interactions matter a lot. We know that uh, about a third of the population say that they generally influence other people who they know, which really means that the other two thirds are saying, I tend not to be the person who's influencing others, but I am in many cases influenced by those others. So we know the social interaction side really matters a lot. And sometimes that gets lumped in with social media in a way that that kind of allows the perception to develop that whatever is said on Twitter by whomever uh, will matter to a voter. And that isn't really how it works in our, in our experience. It's uh, Twitter probably does something to change or set or reset uh, the news coverage agenda. And sometimes the campaigns will react to something that they spot first on Twitter. But from a public opinion standpoint, it can't have that much impact. Facebook, on the other hand, really is a place where more people are writing their opinions for the benefit of their friends. Um, The network of people that they've chosen to interact with uh, is more, in most cases, is more intimate um, than the network that they might have on Twitter. And so it's a different, it's a different platform and it works in different ways. Are you sensing what level of engagement there is out there, uh, yet from anything that you've done? I mean, you said that a lot of people are, are still in the, in the summer mindset and good for them that they are. We waited long enough for this summer after the last year and a half we've had, um, but are you, are you sensing in, in any way an overall level of engagement? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are going on, and I don't think of them so much as 
Well, I, I think one thing overall that's going on is that we're seeing the difference between asking people the question, if an election were tomorrow, how are you going to vote in a hypothetical way before there's an election, in which case people know it's a hypothetical, and they answer it anyway. Um, but they're not really committing to that as a final decision. Once we start asking the same question in the context of an actual election, which is what's happening now, opinions soften, they migrate a little bit, they meander a little bit. Um, but, you know, we're still finding about 40% uh, overall of the people who tell us that they have a choice say that their choice might change. And that's even higher among NDP and Green Party voters. It's about half of NDP and Green Party voters. So within that general thing, what are, what are some of the movements that we're seeing that reflect some degree of engagement by, I would say, probably at this point, a minority of, uh, of the electorate? Um, we're watching Aaron O'Toole's favorability numbers. His negatives haven't come down, but his positives went up, which means that some of the people who had no opinion about him before developed a positive opinion about him in the first few days of the campaign. Uh, he still has relatively high negatives, but that's a better start for Aaron O'Toole than what we saw with Andrew Scheer. And uh, it's bound to give some reason for optimism to the Conservative Party campaigners. The second thing that we see is that there's a continued increase over a several month period in support for the NDP. It kind of ticks up relatively slowly and is still not anywhere near a level where you would look at them and say, well, they're competing to form a government, but it can't be overlooked, especially by the liberals, as a factor that could affect their success. And also because uh, Jagmeet Singh continues to be quite popular, and I would say a more effective campaigner in my perception than he was in the last campaign, um, you know, the liberals, if they're going to try to get some of those NDP votes to come over to their side, they're going to have to fight for those votes. And uh, they're going to fight a, you know, a, maybe a better positioned NDP and a kind of better performing leader than was the case in 2019. So I think that that's a thing that we can see continuing to be uh, a, an area of concern for the liberals and optimism for the NDP. And I think the last thing uh, uh, I would say that we see is that the liberal support uh, continues in our polling anyway to to hold up below the levels that we were seeing a month or two ago, uh, but at levels that are consistent with the outcome that they got in 2019. And we know that, you know, about half of voters like Justin Trudeau and half don't. And I think a lot of the questions about how this campaign are going to go for the uh, for the liberals really revolve around a couple of things. Will uh, Justin Trudeau be uh, the ballot question, or will it be, do you want a conservative government? Um, will those progressive voters who are leaning more NDP than liberal right now, will they go ahead and do that? Or will they decide that there's a risk of a conservative government and maybe they should vote liberal? You know, the, a strategy that's been tried and executed in the past. Um, so I think there's a lot to play for for the for the parties. Uh, oh, there's one other thing that we are noticing, Peter. That um, even though this is probably the time, the election in my life that more, more voters were preoccupied with environmental issues and particularly climate change, um, we're seeing really weak levels of support for the Green Party. Uh, it isn't the answer that a lot of voters are looking for if they're concerned about the environment right now. 
That's a that's an interesting breakdown on uh, on all of them, and uh, it gives us food for thought. Let me ask you one question in a context sense of one of the first numbers you threw out there: forty uh, percent suggesting that they could still change their vote. I think that's what you said, right? Yes. Um, how, how does that stack up with past elections? Is that is that higher than normal, or is that uh, about where it's been in the past? It seems higher than normal to me. I don't know if we've got exactly that question on a tracking basis, but I will go back and check it. So that's in addition to the undecided. Um, And one of the things that we're trying to be careful to do is to recognize the, you know, the distinction between um, an undecided, completely undecided, um, an undecided but won't vote, which is, you know, a lot of the undecided that's measured in polls usually is made up of people who aren't going to vote at the end of the day. So we look at uh, voting motivation and basically we ask questions about, are you sure, sure, sure you're going to vote or are you probably going to vote or or probably not going to vote? And and that gives us a bit better read on what kind of turnout to expect. Um but it's, um, it, you know, my sense is right now that we've got a lot of progressive voters, maybe more than were there in 2019, and some more of them are definitely looking at the NDP than were in that election campaign. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, enough conservative potential voters for the conservatives to win, but lingering concerns about the conservatives. And I, I noticed that in the last 24 hours, it, you know, if you'd asked me 24 hours ago, what might be the issues that will um, become central to this conversation about will the conservatives be able to kind of rally people to a, the idea of a change in their direction or will progressive voters rally um, against a, a conservative a government? The two that look most um, plausible to me now, and things can change obviously in 24 hours, are healthcare and uh, climate change. I noticed that um, Aaron O'Toole said in the context of an interview yesterday that if he were prime minister, he would essentially roll back Canada's climate targets. And I think for a lot of those younger voters in particular, progressive voters, the idea of saying, we'll, <clears throat> we'll burn the planet faster, it just seems like a, a, you know, a non-starter. So I'll be surprised if that doesn't become a bigger part of the political conversation. And the second is the whole question of two-tier medicine. And I, I know that conservative um, supporters are, they're always frustrated when this comes up and they think that it's a kind of a, a, a you know, it's a false accusation by the liberals or others. Um, but we do have a situation where the way that Aaron O'Toole has defined the notion of choice being introduced into healthcare, and now I gather the head of the CMA has said, yeah, it does feel like it opens the door to two-tier medicine. I think two-tier medicine sounds like a policy nerd kind of word uh, or term, but you know, in the hands of the conservatives' opponents, it will start to sound like the rich get to buy the healthcare they want and the rest of us get whatever's left. So I think those two issues could become really important in part because the liberals uh, need to be on the attack if they're going to win and they need to galvanize younger voters and climate change is a particularly interesting issue for them. And they need to galvanize some older voters and healthcare is a particularly interesting issue to those, to those voters. 
Okay, I want to talk about um, a couple of things that you brought up, including the younger voters situation, but we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Okay, Peter Mansbridge back in Arctic Bay, Nunavut, and Bruce Anderson is in uh, Nova Scotia. What was the name of that place you were in? A great name. Uh, well, Meadow near Beach Liverpool, or Beach something. Meadows. Beach Meadows. Man, that's uh, that sounds. Well, it sounds like what I guess it is. Meadows near a beach sounds wonderful. That's and Arctic right. Bay is exactly what it sounds like. It's a Arctic Bay. We came in here on on the uh, new the Navy's new. Arctic Patrol vessel Harry De Wolf, cutting through the uh, the waters of um, uh, just north of here is uh, Lancaster Sound. We came through there and down into uh, uh, Arctic Bay, and it's you know it, it's spectacular the scenery. I know I did a FaceTime with you the other day from Greece Fjord, and it, it really is it's unbelievable the natural beauty of of this place uh, of our country, and so much of it, so much of it is um, kind of unattainable to most Canadians. It's exorbitant to do, you know, to come up here to to try and, uh, you know, have a holiday. It's ex- so expensive to travel uh, in the Arctic, and they, they're limited as to how many people they can actually handle anyway. But, you know, someday it's going to be available. won't be in my lifetime, I'm sure, but it's going to be available to a lot more Canadians to see it, and it, it it's absolutely uh, worth seeing. Okay, um, uh, let me get uh, back on uh, the focus of what um, what you can help us with. And and for those, I know all of our listeners know that Bruce is also the chairman of Abacus Data, and along with uh, David Coletto uh, is you know punching out numbers as some of the country's best uh, research analysts and pollsters do, especially during election campaign. And so that's what he's relying on when he's telling us these uh, various things. I, I want to, you always used to tell me that a, a, an interesting way of tracking the mood of a country before an election is to get a sense of whether or not, where the numbers exist in terms of how many people actually want a change in government or want a new government. Uh, and that last time around in 2019, it was actually quite high. Um it wasn't it over 50%. I think at the beginning of the campaign, we're saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm contemplating, um, voting for a new government, a change in government. And I'm wondering, yeah, where is that number going into this campaign? Yeah. We asked the question that basically has four possible responses. One is, uh, I really, really want a change in government. Uh, it means a lot to me. Second is I'd prefer a change in government, but it doesn't really matter to me. Third answer category is I prefer the same government, but I don't care that much. And fourth is I really want the same government to be in office after the election. So that gives us a measure both of the kind of the direction and the intensity of the feeling, which I think is really important. And in the last election and in this one, it's about 70% that uh, would want a change in government. And, you know, that always feels kind of like a large number until you realize, well, the liberals won, I think with 33% of the vote um, in the last election. So it's not completely inconsistent with, with that. I mean, some people will have voted green in the last election wanting a green government, but 
in the end happy enough with with what they got and, and the same thing is true for for other party supporters as well um so where are we at today um the difference that we see from the last election peter is on the first answer category that it really matters a lot to me to have a change um the number today i think is 44 percent, and that is about six points lower than what we saw in 2019 so that's a good omen, if you like, for the Liberals, that the intensity of desire for change isn't as high in 2021 as it was in 2019. That 44% also obviously splits between people who want to change to the left and people who want to change to the right. Um, And so that 44% isn't a strong enough number to completely reassure the Conservatives that they have a chance at victory now because they know that they're going in you know, to an election where people are saying, well, I'm, I'm not as mad as I was even in uh, 2019 uh, when they got, I think, 34% of the vote. Um, and so will those voters be as motivated? Um, that's the that's a critical question, I think, for the Conservatives. And it's a critical question, obviously, for the Liberals uh, as well. Is it if the Conservative voters become more motivated, if that number that says, I really want to change goes up, um, that would be a risk factor for the Liberals for sure. You mentioned young people just before we took the break, and I want to I want to explore that a little bit because um, you know I remember a couple of weeks ago when uh, um, when Jagmeet Singh was a guest on on the bridge, and you know I asked him the question, you know, where what's your base these days uh, as the NDP leader? Because over time. The base for the NDP has changed. You know, in the, the old Tommy Douglas days, it was kind of Western Canada prairies in particular, um, and then it uh, shifted around with, um, you know, uh, with Ed Broadbent. It became very much the base of, uh, you know, the, the the labor groups, especially in uh, in Ontario. Um, they always both were looking towards BC as well. Uh, Jack Layton. It was all about Quebec. And so I asked, you know, Jagmeet Singh, where's your base? And he says, well, it's none of those. It's young people, and it's kind of across the board. And he's convinced that he's, you know, hitting the mark with young people on a number of subjects, some of which you've already mentioned. Um, The problem with banking on young people, at least that we've witnessed in past elections, is you know, I, I don't mean to be cruel, but they talk a good game about involvement. And yet when it comes time to actually vote, their turnout is not as high as the parties who were depending on them had hoped for. I don't know where it'll be this time round. We are always, you know, looking for engagement with young people. Uh, all parties are. And, uh, you know, observers to the process are hoping young people will turn out and, and have a, a real say in an election outcome because it is about their future as much as it is anybody's. Um, so what what are you seeing? Are you breaking it down by age? And, and if you are, what are you seeing with young people? Yeah, I, we are breaking it down a lot of different ways, including by age, Peter. And, and, the, and Jagmeet Singh is right that his, if you had to kind of focus on one demographic characteristic as, as evidence of a base, you, you would put the finger on young people. I think he's been effective at conveying a sense of ambition on the issues that matter to them uh, or that matter most to them. 
um, including climate, including diversity, including inclusion on indigenous issues. Uh, I think he conveys empathy uh, in a way that uh, strikes people as very uh, authentic and uh, relatable. Um, and I think that he uh, describes ideas that have a measure of ambition that's bigger than what young people have heard before on questions that matter to their pocketbooks, to their cost of living. And one of the things about the pandemic, I think, is that it's changed the way that we think as a society about what's affordable and what might not be affordable. In fact, it's allowed us to think that you know, any idea, if it's necessary enough, if it's good enough, is affordable, which wasn't really a frame that worked, uh, that was part of our our kind of political culture as much before. And it was always a limitation, uh, kind of a ceiling on support for the NDP was the good ideas, but can we afford them kind of thought. Um, I would also say, though, that in 2015, young people did probably determine the election result for Justin Trudeau. So, the, you know, you're right that historically turnout among young people has been more um, limited than among older people. But 2015 did look like a change and 2019 wasn't that much different. Um, and so I think it's an open question whether young people will um, play uh, as big a role as um, Jagmeet Singh might hope for. Uh, but they're also, with each passing year, more young people uh, in the voting pool. And so we do see a rise in the importance of issues that relate to them. Housing affordability isn't typically that big an issue for people who are over 45. Um, it's much more likely to be uh, an economic issue, as is childcare, uh, as is student debt for younger people. And we do see those rising to the, to the forefront along with climate change, along with equality and diversity uh, among younger people. And, and uh, so I think those do naturally create an electorate that's a little bit more articulated towards the, the center and the left of the spectrum. Um, and that's why we really have two, two, uh, two party races. If we look at generation now among older people, we've got a race between the liberals and the conservatives and among younger people, it's a race between the NDP and the liberals. I want to talk a, a moment about issues. Um, issues change all the time. You always assume that the, the issue that's breaking at the moment is going to be the issue that it carries the day in an election campaign and becomes the ballot question. Usually we learn that in fact, the way we live in our world today, things move pretty fast. Now, the pandemic has obviously been an issue for 18 plus months now and will you know, have an impact, I'm sure, in the campaign. I'm going to list off a bunch of issues here, and I want you to give me a sense of um, not where they rank, but you know, what's grabbing hold at the moment, at this point, two weeks into the campaign. You have the pandemic, obviously. Um, and the sense of a fourth wave coming, or we're already in. Uh, Afghanistan, nobody was talking about Afghanistan three weeks ago. Now Afghanistan is a player and uh, is an issue that the, the Canadian government has, have, has had to take action on, and uh, opposition parties are saying different things about that action that they've taken. Um, you have uh, the economy in a very general sense, uh, and in specific cases about, you know, the, the, the cost of the pandemic um, uh, recovery program, 
how it's going to impact inflation, where the jobs are coming from. Is there a, you know, is there a, a, a future planned on how, uh, if we ever get out of this pandemic, um, potential governments will handle uh, that, that future? I mean, those are, uh, you know, a, a couple of the issues uh, that are playing. Healthcare is always an issue in a more general sense. Uh, who's paying for what and where the, where's the money coming from on that. Uh, of those and whatever other ones I know you'll add, what's, uh, you know, what's the, uh, what's the conversation about out there in terms of those who are fixated on this election? Well, I do think that there's two kind of categories of issue, Peter. One is the specific issue of, you know, things like housing and um, what can be done about it. And these are more kind of, they're very important personal issues and they're, but they're a little bit technical from from a policy standpoint. And then there's the kind of the more of the atmospherics, the, does this party care enough about climate change? Um, Does it have a good enough track record on diversity and inclusion? Or am I, you know, not comfortable with uh, where they are coming from on that sort of thing. And those are solved less by the specifics of any platform promise and more by the sense of what kind of person is the leader and how do they sound when they talk about these issues and what sort of candidates are they attracting and what sort of mistakes or other statements they're saying about it. Um, And I don't think that we really know uh, which ones will rise to the uh, to the you know highest level of importance. Although I do, did mention, I think that this idea of healthcare for rich people and healthcare for everybody else, and also climate change, and are we going to roll back our commitments to um, to try to fight emissions, reduce emissions? Those are very promising. I do think the vaccination and the pandemic questions will come into focus around the time that we're going back to uh, families are going back to school and. Um, and the van- vaccine mandate will be part of that. Now, I don't know that it'll be a question so much of um, uh, is the, you know, are the support programs the right programs? I think it will be a little bit about can we continue to have support programs and not at the same time uh, really require vaccination? Because if we say we're not going to require vaccination and we are going to continue to support uh, businesses, for example, that um, that don't want to require vaccination, then, you know, is that really going to work as an idea? Politically, I kind of doubt it. I think that the voters will decide that they don't really want to subsidize with their tax dollars businesses that can't open because they're not doing their part to, uh, to shut down the, the pandemic. Um, I, I think for some voters, um, you know, there might be a crystallization around childcare. $10 a day childcare is an easy idea. Um, it won't matter to people particularly who who don't um, need childcare or foresee a, a need for childcare. They may be for it. They may be against it, but it won't be a, a ballot defining question. On Afghanistan, I, I think it's a little bit early to to really say, but my instincts based on having seen so many issues over the years, um, you, you know, my feeling is that Canadians tend to be pretty uh, rational or practical about this kind of thing. I think they might look at this situation and say it's traumatizing to watch. It's terrible to see. It's a calamity. We feel terribly about it. But 
what is our responsibility in it? Not everybody will kind of have that sense that that some in the media and the critics of the government are saying that is that this is a betrayal by Canada. Um, and also people will probably ask themselves the question, well, what, what else could we do about it right now? And I know there, there are some critics who are saying, well, you know, there was some um, bureaucratic delay in getting some people out and that sort of thing. But, you know, my experience, people will look at this and say at some point that, we've been flying people out and we'll continue to fly people out as long as it's, it's safe to do that. And we'll continue to try to find other ways to help people. But um, what's the practical alternative? And if they don't see a practical alternative, just having a harangue about who could have done what, when over the last several years probably won't, won't add up to that much political traction. That would be my sense. Okay. Um, I know we haven't got into, uh, you know, particular actions on the part of the uh, various leaders in this conversation, but I found it really extremely rewarding in a a sense of breaking down some of the issues and some of the ways the things unfold in a campaign. Um, I know tomorrow for the Friday uh, edition of Good Talk, Chantel will join you and I, and um, we'll get into more of a you know, back and forth, I think, on uh, on how the different leaders are performing and the impact they're having on the campaign at this admittedly uh, early stage. But uh, in the meantime, it's batch, back to Beach Meadow for you. How long, how long are you uh, going to be holidaying on the East Coast? Are you there for another you know, week? Another, um, it looks like uh, we'll start hitting back towards Ottawa on uh, on Sunday. So a few more days yet. And, and you how, about you, Peter? There, right? how much longer are you going to be in the north? I'm I'm should be out of the north tomorrow. Uh, you never know <laughs> when you're in the Arctic how how plane schedules can be affected by by weather and sudden snowstorms, which have started already. It's still August, um, but uh, for the most part, man, this trip the weather has been uh, spectacular. Um, you drove out there, right? That's right. Yes, it's a great drive. You know, I, it was a great drive. We, really we're enjoyed so, it, especially this. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Shore of the St. Lawrence, going through a lot of towns where some of Canada's oldest history is, and uh, that got me kind of fascinated by Champlain's uh, voyages to uh, to the New World. And uh, yeah, it's been great to uh, to not be on a plane and to actually kind of experience the um, that drive through. Uh, through parts of Canada that I don't see very often. Well, you know, you're so right. I mean, traveling by plane across the country, uh, con- across the country is a great luxury, and it's great for business in terms of the sense of being able to get back and forth and, you know, uh, attend certain meetings and, and pull off certain deals, what have you, whatever your business may be. But you don't see the country except from, you know, 35,000 feet, and uh, it's just not the same. And getting that opportunity you know, travel the country, whether it's by car or by uh, train or by uh, motorcycle, <laughs> whatever it may be, uh, does give you a sense to really see the country uh, that you've chosen to live in and to uh, remember some of its history. And it's interesting that we've uh, both spent the last uh, week or so doing exactly that. Uh, you looking at the, uh, you know, the Southern history and me, the Northern, and in both cases, kind of the same thing, you know, when Champlain and others came here, the, those initial voyages to Canada weren't to find Canada, 
they were looking for Asia, right? And then they found this great country That's along right. the way. And the, the same, very much so in the Arctic, uh, you know, the search for the Northwest Passage, it was all about trying to get a fast route uh, to Asia to trade. Um, and they, uh, they got blocked by a lot of things, mainly ice. Anyway, listen, uh, thanks for doing this, Bruce. Enjoy the last few days of uh, your holiday, but we will interrupt it again on Friday, tomorrow, for uh, a good talk with Chantel. So you take care and uh, travel safe. You bet, Peter. You too. Talk to you soon. Yep. All right. That's it for uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, special edition, special election edition, uh, based out of Arctic Bay in Nunavut on this day. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 